Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series in the Book of Acts, and here Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John will discuss the last half of Acts chapter 16, which covers Lydia's conversion and Paul and Silas in prison. As always, we do invite you to take a look at those show notes. We have a link there to our YouTube channel, and we are currently in the middle of a series going through the book of Revelation. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Acts 16. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart. I'm here today with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. Uh, Brian Motes is in the background recording and uh, will be editing and making the uh, podcast available to you. We are in the middle of a series of studies in the book of Acts, uh, and we had begun Acts 16. This is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey uh, after the Council of Jerusalem, which is uh, recounted in Acts 15. And the second missionary journey has a rather rough start with Paul breaking up with Barnabas, his previous partner, and finding a new partner, Silas. And then uh, they attempt several routes uh, to uh, go out to visit the churches that they've already established and then to go into other areas. And they keep getting blocked until Paul sees a vision of a man in Macedonia calling for Paul to come over and help. And that's where we left the story uh, and picking up there in Acts 16 as Paul and Silas journey from Troas across to Philippi and uh, there uh, encounter a couple of different main characters and a, a couple of different incidents. Uh, one, one way to put this in a general context, uh, chapter 16 is the first of a, a first of a number of chapters that recount Paul's struggles in Gentile cities with uh, accusations and charges being brought against Paul. Over the next several chapters, there'll be four main occasions when that happens. Uh, it happens here in Philippi in chapter 16. It happens again in Thessalonica. Uh, it happens again in Corinth, and then finally happens in Ephesus, where there's another riot that uh, somewhat resembles the incident in Philippi. Uh, and the, uh, the accusations are coming from different sides. Uh, the accusers in Philippi and Ephesus, the first and the last of the sequence of four incidents, are Gentiles. The main accusers in Thessalonica and Corinth are Jews. Uh, so we have this as Paul moves into this new phase of his work, after the Jerusalem Council, he's encountering opposition from both sides, from Jews and Gentiles, and uh, the accusations against Paul's mission are recorded for us, what, the reasons why these uh, different groups are opposing him. So we have this, this general context of uh, accusation. In the, in the chapters after that, uh, from chapter 21 on, we have uh, a series of scenes where Paul gives a defense. So in a sense, we have, you know, we've got uh, nearly 10 chapters that look like, if you look at it from a certain distance, it looks like a great a giant trial scene. Jews bring accusations, Gentiles bring accusations. And then Paul defends himself in Jerusalem. He defends himself before Festus. He defends himself before Felix. He defends himself before Agrippa. He defends himself before the Jewish courts, before the Herodian court, before the Roman court. 
Uh, and then um, that climaxes, of course, with Paul being sent off to Caesar, to whom he's appealed his case. So th- that's that gives a kind of uh, large scale picture of what's happening over the next 10 chapters or so in the book of Acts. Uh, and chapter 16 fits into that as the first incident where we have accusations against Paul articulated by these Gentile authorities and, and, and a Gentile mob, basically. Reading it within the context of this chapter, it's easy to lose sight of just how significant an event is taking place here. Uh, when you think about Paul's journey from Troas, um, this is the first footstep of the gospel in Europe. And in many ways, the dawn of the creation of Europe as an entity, um, what it means for uh, how formative the Christian gospel actually was and the creation of um, the identities of many peoples across the scope of Europe as the gospel won victories in land after land. And in this first step, I think we see the coming over to Macedonia to help. Um, There is a sense of the way that the Spirit has so much greater plans than can ever be realized by those who are caught up in them. Um, and looking from our perspective back on this, we maybe see things that Paul could never have imagined have come out of what he has done, what he did in these um, few verses. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I totally agree in terms of its significance. At the same time, it strikes me as interesting that just as happened before when initially people like Cornelius, as far as I can tell, were God, they were Gentiles, but they were God-fearers. Um, Lydia seems to fit into the same category. Um, she is a worshipper of God, and, and she's there down by the river um, in prayer. So this is not immediately the conversion of um, paganized or uh, idolaters or, or anything, but this is beginning with, uh, what would you call it, um, God-fearers, religious communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the, the um, setting of the community that Lydia is a part of is interesting. They are outside the gates paul goes outside the gates to find this group at a riverside so that and it's on a sabbath day so that suggests it's a a jewish community or pay, or perhaps just a community of gentile god-fearers but they're outside the city the city of philippi is a as a verse 12 says it's the leading city in macedonia a roman colony and philippi itself has a as a peculiarly roman uh, heritage and consciousness verse 21 indicates that too um, Paul and Silas are proclaiming customs that it's not lawful us being Romans uh, to follow. Uh, Philippi was a was a uh, a colony of Rome, and it was a had a, a particular status and a special status that gave it the same legal rights that cities in Italy had. It was resettled after the Roman conquest. It was resettled by uh, people from Italy and from Rome. So there are some who are uh, trace their heritage back to the capital and to the home country. But Philippi has this really uh, strong consciousness of being Roman. And uh, one indication of that perhaps is the fact that you have this Jewish community or this God-fearing community outside of the city. And one of the things that's going on in the course of this chapter is the movement of the Christian community, the believing community from that uh, riverside place of prayer outside uh, into Lydia's house, which is presumably inside the city. Uh, That's where we end the the chapter with... uh, after the imprisonment and the jailbreak and all that, uh, they go back to uh, the house of Lydia 
uh, and encourage them. So within this very decidedly Roman city, uh, you have this almost an invasion of this uh, God-fearing community that comes in and establishes a beachhead within within Philippi. What do you make of the uh, the fact that uh, Lydia is a seller of purple? It's a dye with royal connotations. Um, presumably, she, as she has her own household, she's someone with some independent wealth. Beyond that, I'm not sure what to make of it. Yeah, you certainly have a. Yeah, in the ind- her independence as a businesswoman, as and as a as a house house owner, apparently, uh, and uh, and house householder. Uh, the thought that I had was uh, thinking of temple and priestly colors. Uh, scarlet and purple and blue are the colors of the curtains of the tabernacle and other fabrics that are used for the priestly garments and and other things. And I wondered if there was some association of Lydia with the temple. Her house does become, as I said, the center of worship uh, and the center of uh, devotion to Jesus. Uh, and it's as if there's this this new outpost of the new temple of God being set up with Lydia, the, the seller of purple fabrics, being the uh, the hostess of this new community. We do have, a, we've got a, a combination of conversions as we have in uh, or combination of people as we often have in Luke and Acts both. Uh, we've seen this before. I, I know we've seen it before, but the, the incidents don't come back to mind right away. Maybe you can remind me. But we have um, Lydia, who is a God-fearer, but her heart is opened to the word of the Lord. And uh, having opened her heart to the word, she opens her house to, the, to those who also receive the word. But then we have this jailer, who does appear to be a pagan. So we have this woman and a man who are both singled out as individual converts. Uh, both of them are baptized. Both of them are baptized with their whole household. So there's the there's this combination. And we've seen we've seen this before in in Luke and Acts that there's a, a incidents where well, I think you know there's two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, we've talked about Annas and Anna and uh, Simeon at the beginning of the book of Luke. And I think it's happened elsewhere in Acts that I can't I can't remember the particular occasion when you had a man and a woman, Ananias and Sapphira is a, is a negative example, but you have other examples where you have pairs of characters that are converted. Hmm. There is, for instance, the healing of um, uh, Ananias in the end of chapter nine, sort of next uh, side by side with the resurrection of, of Tabitha um, as, as one sort of pair, pair of healings. Yeah, right. Again, a male-female pair. Hmm. Right. The way that the baptism of her household is described almost as a matter of course um, is interesting. Uh, it suggests that there is an understanding of faith and commitment to Christ where, first of all, it has a bit more of a public force. This is not just a very individual thing, asking Jesus into your personal heart, but it's having your life come under his rule, and that involves also your household, that involves your family, it involves the order that you have around you and the expectation that it would be normal for someone in Lydia's position that her servants, the people who are attached to her household would also be implicated in her commitment to the gospel. Maybe suggests that we need to um, take more seriously the idea of um, the importance of the faith of parents and the way that their children are implicated in that. 
Right. And beyond that, you're suggesting that uh, maybe the we should broaden our focus from just children to thinking about the ordering of households and how the entire operation of a household can can be baptized, as it were, and uh, come under the reign of Christ. Uh, I mean, for Lydia, that involves like patterns of hospitality, obviously, uh, where she she receives the messengers of the word and she's blessed by receiving those messengers, and uh, and and that's that's one specific indication or it's one specific way that her household becomes devoted to the gospel. Mm. And perhaps what would be most comparable to some ancient households would be a modern small business um, where its operations and the various people involved in it are all, um, in some sense, made part of a new order coming under different principles. There's a new way of life instituted. And so it's as if a business were to identify itself as a Christian business and everyone who now works for it is part of a Christian business that it's not just individuals, but collectives, nations, businesses, um, households that can be Christian. Um, that's quite a radical statement, I think, within our day and age where we tend to reduce Christianity to a very privatized individual realm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder there if, just going back to this idea of a seller of purple, if that's a slightly deliberately ambiguous um, statement in that the sale of purple can be associated with uh, Babylon or just the opulence and materialism of of trade, or it can have the more godly connotation of of temple Mm -hmm. and and priest and and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the other indications of, of the public character of the gospel that they're proclaiming is the, the incident that, uh, that uh, engulfs Philippi while they're there. It begins with Paul uh, driving a spirit out of this slave girl, uh, and that leads the owners of the slave girl to object that Paul's deprived them of their livelihood. Uh, but instead of presenting that as the rationale, we're told that that's the reason why they're why they're upset with Paul. But uh, rather than present that as the rationale, they present a they present themselves as if they're concerned with the public with the public good. Uh, they're not objecting to Paul and Silas because they've lost their uh, income, but they're objecting because they're undermining the social contract of the city of Philippi. So, um, so th- that's the almost by accident, almost unintentionally, Paul and Silas come in and begin proclaiming the gospel, and that immediately becomes the, the, it's the it's the people of Philippi who ratcheted up into a crisis of the foundations of the city. Um, but it is, you know, it ends up being a public dispute about the, the character of Philippi and uh, to what degree they can, t- they're going to be, they're going to be willing to tolerate alternative customs within the city. Alongside the concern for the um, entrance of the gospel into the life of cities such as Philippi, you also have this cosmopolitan class who someone like um, Lydia, who's from Thyatira, which is in Asia Minor, not in um, the region that Paul's in at the time. But yet she seems to have a household within the city. She's part part of a, a seemingly trading class cosmopolitan who maybe moves from place to place, spends part of the year trading in Philippi and elsewhere, and then part of the year maybe back in Thyatira. And those levels of the church's life, where you have people who are very much part of a local 
city setting. And then also a large class of people who are moving frequently from place to place, whether on business, whether displaced persons, um, as we see in the case of Ananias, as in the case of Aquila and Priscilla, who are from Rome, but are moved out, presumably, as a result of Claudius's expulsion. Um, there are a number of different classes of people, some who are like a dandelion clock of um, the Christian message. It's just blown and they scatter everywhere. And then others who are placing down deep roots into specific locations. And you have both of these in the same place. Hmm. What do you all make of uh, Paul's uh, reaction to this slave girl? She's following them, proclaiming that they are bondservants of the Most High God, proclaiming the way of salvation, which is true. Uh, and Paul apparently lets it go initially. Verse 18 says she's doing this for many days. And then eventually Paul just gets annoyed. And you have this kind of exorcism by annoyance. <laughs> and he, <laughs> he just commands the spirit to go out of her, which happens. So what's what's going on there? Is this like the annoyance that Paul has for we, – we find out in the next chapter that he's troubled when he sees all of the statues and shrines in the book in the, in the city of Athens all the different gods that are being worshipped there, and his soul is troubled by that. Is this is this the same kind of thing that he's annoyed or angered by the by the false uh, the false prophecy by by the by the evil spirits by divination, uh, or are we getting a just a glimpse of uh, a short fused Paul, or at least a, a medium fused Paul who just uh, does things because he gets uh, they, they get on his nerves eventually. <laughs> certainly recalls a number of encounters that Jesus has with demons in the Gospels, where mm. they bear witness to the fact that he's the Son of God um, and all the other things that he represents. And yet Christ rebukes them and tells them to be silent. Um, so we're seeing Paul walking in the footsteps of his master here, among other things. Right. I wonder whether we also have stories of exorcism peppered throughout the Gospels and Acts in order to remind us, like in a, um, a movie where you constantly return to the key antagonist when you might get lost in some of the subplots, that this is primarily a campaign against the kingdom of Satan. And mm. the presence of these um, occasional encounters with some of his minions reminds you of that bigger battle that's taking place. Right. Yeah, we've been seeing that periodically through our studies in Acts that there are encounters with uh, magicians, uh, diviners, false prophets of various sorts, uh, and um, the uh, again and again the power of the gospel is shown to be superior to that. So there's a there's an element of spiritual combat that's going on throughout. Hmm. I wonder. I mean, this is only a, a suggested reading, but I mean we're told in verse 16 up front that this woman had a, a spirit of divination um but i wonder if we're meant to assume that paul immediately knew that so initially she's just saying the, these men are the servants of the most high um god which i mean she could have gleaned anyway if they're going around preaching and, and so forth i wonder if the annoyance was the kind of comes hand in hand with the revelation that this is a spirit of of divination uh, mm. and, and that sort of then think Paul commands it. Um, I wonder if they sort of, it's, it's realization of, of the nature of the spiritual force here. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. 
Well, Paul is a uh, Paul and Silas are assaulted not just by the they're accused by the the owners of the slave girl who've lost their profit. the The spirit goes out of her at that very moment, and then their hope of profit goes out of them. The same verb is used, um, and uh, they uh, drag Paul into the market. They accuse Paul before the magistrates, uh, and the whole crowd rises up and beats them. Uh, with rods out in public in verse 22. And then the magistrates throw them into prison. So it's like the whole city has banded together in order to uh, oppose Paul. You've got the the businessmen who have the, have the uh, slave girl. Uh, you have the crowd, the mob and the magistrates themselves. And then the jailer who's uh, keeping guard. Um, and again, that just uh, highlights again, that the crisis here is a crisis that's shaking um Shaking Philippi, this is a the the whole system is being confronted in some way uh, because of the uh, arrival of Paul and Silas, which makes the earth the midnight earthquake in the in the prison is a uh, it's a it's a kind of theophany. Uh, it's a it's a signal of a kind of resurrection, uh, but it's also I think a symbol of the political uh, situation that uh, the political crisis that Paul and Silas have provoked. Uh, the whole city is being shaken by, uh, by their presence and by the the proclamation of the gospel. And there are competing exorcisms. There's the exorcism of the um, spirit of divination from the slave girl, but then the attempted exorcism, as it were, of Paul and Silas and the the gospel from the city. Um, it reminds me of the story of the um, the healing of the demoniac in the land of the Gerasenes where Jesus casting out um, the demons into the swine leads to the Gerasenes trying to cast him out or remove him from their land. And it becomes apparent that even though there's this um, outcast who has all these spirits within him, the legion, he is integral to the order of the the city and the larger mm-hmm. um, country that he belongs to. And here, I think you have the same thing revealed. Um, there is an economic reason why the people respond as they do. This um, slave girl who may seem to be a person of little little consequence is actually making people a lot of money um, by the divination that she has. And so societies can often be built upon the demons that they have, which they've dislocated and placed in particular persons, whatever it is, but those demons still remain foundational to what that society is. And if those demons are removed, they have to face their character more directly. And that is something that will often lead them to react against the truth and try and drive it out. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. One other layer to the the discussion of uh, spiritual warfare that we've been uh, bringing up uh, the 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 slave girl is possessed by a uh, a Pythian spirit, so she has. That's the the Greek term refers to the um, the the oracle that would be associated with Apollo, the or or a spirit similar to the oracle associated with Apollo or the oracles associated with Delphi, um, often represented as a serpent, and so there's a kind of confrontation with a satanic kind of character. And I think you're right that there's a, an analogy with a gathering demoniac who's kind of the, the cornerstone of the whole system. And you pull out the cornerstone and then everything else kind of get, goes into turmoil. 
it seems significant that in the next um, event with the Philippine jailer, the wording is that the foundations of the prison prison were shaken, mm-hmm. and then in the next chapter we've got this image of the men turning the world upside down, and you get the sense very clearly that the gospel isn't this thing that it can arrive at a city and then sort of life can go on as 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 normal, but with a few converts in the middle of it. You know, it, it is something that is. Um, uh, transformative of of families and households and and ultimately societies yeah i I agree i don't think we should minimize though the significance of um the result here uh, is that you have a small community of believers within the city of philippi um that are meeting at, at lydia's house so after all this upheaval you know um it doesn't look like the the uh the result is not <laughs> that you have um, the city magistrates are uh, taken away, and uh, Paul and Silas are ruling Philippi. Um, so you you don't have that kind of that kind of change, but you do have now uh, Christian worshippers, uh, Christ followers, and worshippers of the living God that are planted in Philippi, which I think is we don't don't want to minimize that because that that means a massive adjustment of uh, of uh, the whole order of Philippi again. I, I go back to the uh, to the point about the geographic move of Lydia's community. She's out with the worshippers outside the city, and then comes into the city. That that movement is a movement that shakes the that is shaking the foundations of the city. Now there's a community that acknowledges another king, that uh, recognizes Jesus as king, and the way that the way that the events transpire, uh, God orchestrates things so that the authorities end up kind of accepting this as an accomplished fact. <laughs> um, first of all, they want to drive Paul and Silas out. They let them get beaten. They put them in jail. The next morning, these are sobered magistrates, uh, repentant magistrates who want to let them go. Uh, one presumes that the the uh, earthquake, they felt the earthquake during the night and they, they uh, link it with the presence of Paul and Silas. Maybe they've heard a report from the jailer uh, that uh, in fact, the Paul and Silas have... Uh, are the uh, kind of the epicenter of the earthquake, uh, but Paul doesn't allow that to happen. He insists that they uh, they vindicate him publicly and come and receive him. So um, the, the the magistrates by the end of the chapter are basically admitting that they were wrong to the jail them in the first place, and they are admitting that uh, their uh, Lydia and her company of uh, of uh, worshippers are uh, are legal and accepted within Philippi. So I think the, the the two things that I'm trying to put together is the the shaking of the foundations and the planting of a little worshiping community. That's the same thing. the The planting of a little worshiping community is a is a strike of the foundations of a pagan city like Philippi. Mm. And yeah. the accusation that they make is very similar to an accusation we find on the lips of the Jews um, yeah. that they're teaching customs that are not lawful for us. Um, that concern to maintain the customs that make a particular place just remind us that the gospel is not a conservative thing when the gospel comes to a place it really does shake the foundations and so although we can often have conservative impulses as christians and those aren't entirely bad things um it's important to remember that the gospel will often get down to the very roots and unsettle the very basic ways that we are accustomed to do doing things the ways that we've grown up with the traditions that we've held and will force us to adopt something that is a radical change from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
toward the uh, end of the chapter, uh, the episode in the jail, the jailer himself becomes a principal character. He wakes up when there's an earthquake and in it initially wants to kill himself because he thinks he's going to be executed anyway for letting prisoners out of his jail. One of the interesting things about that the episode is that that hasn't happened. All of the all of the prisoners remain. This is not what happens when or earlier in Acts when Peter is in jail and an angel opens up the jail. Peter leaves. <laughs> uh, Paul and Silas stay inside, and perhaps setting up for what uh, what happens in the next morning when Paul insists are being vindicated publicly, and uh, the magistrates basically admitting that they were wrong to imprison them in the first place. Uh, but I think that also this feels like a harrowing of hell almost that there's a, there's a shaking, the doors fly open and everybody's free to go. But uh, it's, uh, it's not like a, it's not like they're slipping out the side door secretly though. The whole prison is opened up. Uh, and um, you know, th- there's a, yeah, again, it feels like a, it feels like a harrowing of the prison rather than just a, rather than just an escape. Hmm. The question of the, um, Philippian jailer is interesting. We often, we grew up in Sunday school and in Bible clubs learning the response given to the Philippian jailer's question. Don't maybe give as much thought to the context of the question, the force the question would have had in the context, or to the end of the response, which concerns not just the jailer himself, but his family. It seems that he is asking not just for how can I get right with a holy God, but there's something about the urgency of the situation where he's facing a crisis in his the charge that has been given to him as a soldier. He has to defend the prison and there's this earthquake. And what's he going to do to be delivered? And Christ is the answer to that, um, believing in Jesus. And it seems to me that unless we wrestle with the force of the answer given to that question in that context, we may be inclined to diminish what the gospel actually entails, that this is a gospel that deals not just with um, the individual problems of guilt in the heart, but with the concern of someone like that Philippian jailer in the urgency of that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's the other part of the context that's intriguing is the kind of liturgical sequence that we have. Paul and Silas are cast into prison and they kind of immediately turn it into a place of worship. Uh, they are at midnight, so the time of Passover, uh, the time of release. They're praying and singing songs of praise to God, and, and all the prisoners are listening to them as they're singing. There's an earthquake, and after the earthquake, uh, there's a, they they preach the word to the jailer. There's a baptism. There's a kind of mutual baptism in verse 33. Uh, the jailer washes their wounds from their beating, and then he's baptized. It, there's a kind of good Samaritan moment on the behalf of the jailer. He and his household are baptized, and then he brings them into his house and sets food before them. So you end with a common meal. Uh, Lydia's house has become a place of hospitality. The sign that the jailer is receiving Jesus is that he's receiving Jesus' messengers, Paul and Silas. So you have this this kind of liturgical sequence. Uh, there's a, a I came across an interesting chapter from a book called Plots of Epiphany by I don't remember his first name, but the uh, last name is Weaver, uh, and he's got an uh, interesting comparison of this incident in Acts 16 with the Euripides tragedy, the Bacchae, 
where Bacchus comes to the town. I don't remember which town it is in the Bacchae, uh, but he comes to the town, shakes everything up. The king, the king Pentheus doesn't want to receive this new cult into his city. And so he tries to drive him out, but eventually Pentheus is driven mad uh, himself. He kind of gets caught up in the ecstasy of Bacchus. Uh, and in the end, you have this, the cult of Bacchus is established within the city. Uh, and the suggestion is, Weaver's suggestion is that you have a kind of narrative of the establishment of a new cult, uh, where you have uh, this uh, people coming in, proclaiming new customs, proclaiming a new worship. Uh, they are engaged in a kind of liturgy within the within the prison that shakes the whole city. And then the uh, eventual outcome is that you have this little outpost of, uh, of uh, worship in Lydia's house at the end. And, it, and you, you have the sequence where the, the, the new God has come to town and he shakes things up so that the, the people of the town recognize him and uh, some of them at least begin to worship. Yeah. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? How they're praying and singing initially. It's, sometimes again to go back to a slightly sunday school understanding of it it's sometimes portrayed as if i don't know these are such um indomitably joyous folk you know they'd been thrown in the prison and immediately they were singing praying and then eight hours later they were still at it and the prisoners were like still listening to them kind of thing but i i, I mean maybe this is me reducing them to my own sort of low um, spirituality. But I, I wonder if this was a bit more of a begrudging um, <laughs> thing. I mean, they were on their way to prayer, which was on the Sabbath. So I guess they've then been thrown into jail. And now the first day of the week has begun. And I wonder if this is just sort of, well, you know, we've got to sort of get on with the normal um routine of things and something um, intended to uh, encourage them and to lift their spirits rather than um, something that was just, uh, yeah, had been going on spontaneously for, for hours already. Yeah. Or so maybe they're singing, singing imp imprecatory psalms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're saying, James, you're saying they could be singing to, to bring themselves to a state of joy rather than because they're already joyful. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, and uh, in precatory psalms, I like the suggestion that that's uh, that that's <laughs> that that's what they're doing. Uh, one of the I think uh, larger themes that's going on here. We, we've talked about the spiritual warfare, but we we could put that into the context of a uh, an ongoing theme of uh, a, a kind of second Exodus theme that runs through the Gospels and and runs to some degree through the Book of Acts as well. Paul has been designated as being like the servant of the Lord who's going to lead the people out of exile into uh, back into the land. Uh, he's a light to the Gentiles. Uh, Jesus designates him as such. And part of the work of the servant is to shame and demolish the idols of the people and to, you know, as in the first Exodus, the, 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 the idols of Egypt are crushed and the idols of Babylon are going to be crushed. And that's one of the dimensions of the spiritual ward that's going on here. There's the uh, casting out of the spirit of divination that we've talked about, but also there's the um, the idol of Romanitas that's being challenged. Uh, and again, new customs are being introduced that are not customary and lawful for the Romans. But that's part of the that's part of the work of the servant of the Lord, uh, and part of the work of Paul as the servant is to uh, cast down those idols and every rival to Jesus. 
over a decade later, Paul will write to the Philippians and he talks again about a, situa a situation of imprisonment where he's now in prison and it might seem that everything is negative on that account, but yet he sees that this is actually something that's serving to fulfill God's gospel intent, that his faith and the gospel has become known to all of the imperial guard as a result of his imprisonment. And that as a result, there are a lot of Christians becoming more bold. Even Paul's um, rivals are becoming more bold without him around. And he's rejoicing that even if they're declaring the gospel out of envy and rivalry, the gospel is being declared more widely. And it seems in occasions like this, if you're just reading the story and the character of the spirit is not active at all, you might think things have reached a fairly sorry turn and there's no chance really for this mission is just stepping foot on um, in Macedonia and Greece and it's not really receiving a good reception. But yet the way that the spirit orchestrates things, that even these most negative events are the means by which the gospel progresses in this dramatic fashion. It confounds the expectations of those who are being led by the Spirit, those who may, might seem to be driving the mission and having all these plans, but it's very clearly the Spirit that is in charge and the Spirit brings them to the prison. The Spirit brings them into contact with the um, jailer. And then through that, all these other things play out, but it's clearly the Spirit that's in charge. No human being would plan this particular strategy. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.